So, Berto, we did the 13-hour, 13th anniversary live stream. Yes, we did. And we had 13 lists of our top 13 things. Which, which by the way, um, I finally did post all the videos and songs on my YouTube channel, okay. Psycho Berto. And, uh, you know, people have been liking them. It was really fun to make the videos. I just used a tool called Magisto so, so I could pick different clips and, you know, I arranged them how I wanted. That's stock footage, you know, things like, you know, hills and winter scenes okay. and things. So but go to Psychoberto YouTube channel to hear the 13 songs that Berto wrote and recorded just for the 13th, 13-hour YouTube stream. That's right. And we... Uh, did all this stuff and I always record it, but I never post it because I, you know, the 13 hour live stream because um, it's always kind of a train wreck. But I thought we'd go back and tell everyone what our 13 lists were. And we did, we already did it once for uh, movies that cried. we that we cried that to. Crying, yeah. But I thought we would do some more here. So let's start with movie and TV villains, Brito. Oh, yeah. So give me your top 13 movie and TV villains after we introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. And I am Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Brito? My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I'm a dialect coach for androids in Star Wars. So for those of you who came here for psychology-related information, this will not necessarily have it. I mean, maybe a little bit regarding pop culture and TV villains, but not much. So this will not be an episode for you. For those of you who like to listen to me and Berto talk about popular culture, then this episode is right up your alley. Berto, give us your top 13. All right. My number 13 villain of all time in movies is and TV is Voldemort. So, um, you know, Voldemort is a pretty rich, layered bad guy. He's the Harry Potter bad guy. Uh, the way that Rafe finds, is that how you say his name? Rafe finds? Um, even though it's spelled like Ralph? Ralph? Yeah. Yeah. Rafe finds. The way he portrays him is very intimidating, very scary, and very powerful. He's very powerful. Uh, when he finally shows up, he doesn't show up in the first uh, few movies uh, directly. So I when mean, you think of Voldemort, you think of the movie? Yeah, when I picture what Voldemort looks like and acts like, I picture the movie. Because I, I still, uh, I don't. I when I think of this side note, when I think of all the Harry Potter characters, I think of the Harry Potter characters I've visualized in my mind when I was reading the books before the movie. I think the first movie came out after book four, maybe. I'm not sure. Somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. And so, yeah, the whole first four books, and the books don't have any or many illustrations, right? They have the the covers, which I actually never liked, but yeah, yeah, they have very minimal yeah. uh, guides to go off of, and but very descriptive, right? You know, very descriptive. And and in my head, the the Harry in my head does not match the Harry of the movies. The the Hermione particularly doesn't match. The really, Hermione. the Ron. Kind of matches the oh. run. The uh, Snape and the... I guess the um, Dumbledore matches the first Dumbledore actor pretty well. That's fascinating. Yeah. But the Voldemort, in my head, had a... I don't know, had a more... 
maybe you can't even represent what I had in my head because the way that she wrote Voldemort in those first few books, it is so scary. The Voldemort yeah. character is, but he doesn't. You don't see him fully in the first few books, you know. No, Not but, book but you knew he did have a form, and they refer yeah. back to that, you yeah. know, when he attacked the parents. Right, right. You know, like they, she describes Voldemort, and maybe there's not a way you can actually depict that. I, I feel like you might be in the minority here because, um, first of all, I feel like that movie is one of the best casting of all time, of all time. Like, because I was a huge fan going. I'm not in. saying they're not bad actors or depictions it just doesn't meet because the harry in the book had much more frazzled hair it there was a lot of emphasis on his hair always being unkempt and, and messy there was also a lot of emphasis on hermione being homely and emma watson is debatably the most beautiful woman on the planet mm -hmm. you know what i mean and as a child she was you know, you could tell she was emerging into a beautiful woman. Well, they didn't. They didn't make her. They didn't explicitly make her homely in the book. It just. Well, she was a nerd. She was a nerd. She wasn't. She, you didn't get the impression that the Hermione in the book was going to be one of the most beautiful women on the planet. You yeah, know, you got the. You sure. got the impression that she was going to be. You know, I don't know what to say, but, but they <laughs> made her an annoying, pedantic bookworm in the first few movies. It just. Turns out that because they cast good-looking kids, they became generally good-looking. But dude, I, and, and you know, I can't deny your your feelings. Your feelings are what they are. For me, spot perfect, and Voldemort was spot perfect. So when I think of villains, number thirteen for me, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, what makes him Voldemort as a character better than so many other characters? Well, okay. So first of all, his story, his meta story is really intriguing because it is it's an old perennial topic of like eternal life immortality right um but the way he's gone about it is so self-destructive in a way it's like i am so afraid of dying that i'm gonna basically kill off parts of my soul and spread them around and is that why he it, became evil or was he yeah, evil? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, he was already ambitious and, and a little too much so. But by creating horcruxes, he, each time he corrupted himself and his soul further and further. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was really fascinating. And then the fact that he was, you know, a lot of times, because it's a simplistic kid's story as well. Like it, it has to fill both roles. And yet they still made me sort of believe and fear him even though if you stop and think about it, like what's Voldemort after? He just wants to live forever and be powerful. It's like really basic. But then it sort of mirrors like reality in a way. Like what was so Hitler So this after? is interesting. You know, I read all the books, saw all the movies. What was it in, and I don't think I ever fully grasped, which is some, maybe I did grasp it, but why was he trying to, because Harry Potter was a Horcrux? Yeah. So he needed to kill Harry Potter so he could suck part of his life back into him? So first of all, I'm not sure that Voldemort knew that Harry Potter had, been, had become a Horcrux. So what happens is that when he went to kill his mom, um, he did, but the killing of the mom did two things. It protected Harry with a magical spell that Voldemort did not understand or expect that she cast before as she died it was just her sacrifice created this love 
uh, protection. Okay. That wasn't even something Voldemort was aware of, you okay. know, because it's not like a spell you learn. Number one. Number two, I, I, I don't know at that time that he knew he created Horcrux. So what ends up happening is uh, the whole time he's, he's frustrated that he doesn't understand why he couldn't kill Harry. Like, why did, why did that fail? Um, and like, he doesn't know he can't touch Harry. Like when he goes to touch him in the cemetery in book four, he wasn't aware that it was going to not work. And so like, there's a lot of things he didn't understand himself, but I think the main reason he, um, yeah, the main reason he was after Harry, uh, was he hated him. He didn't understand why he lived. So by the end of the movies books had he gotten a lot of his horcruxes and manifested his body back a little bit well sort of because what happens is look in the first book he's not even really after harry what he's after is the philosopher's stone because he's trying to reconstitute himself right with the philosopher's stone it's just harry gets in the way okay in the second movie again he's not after harry really he's after his horcrux in the book but then Harry gets in the way again. Okay, annoying. And and actually, Voldemort's not even directly after it. It's that his little minion Lucius is trying to like interfere with with. Um, did he get some of the? Did he get? Did he absorb some of the Horcruxes, uh, Voldemort? By the end, no, no, not well, not really. But he had it's it's because he wasn't trying to reconstitute himself via the Horcruxes. Oh, it's the opposite. The Horcruxes are life insurance policies. He wants to keep Nagini alive. He wants to keep the locket intact. He wants to, because those are what his fail safes. If they kill one of him, they're still those. So those that's why in the last couple of books, they're trying to, trying to destroy them yes. so that if they kill uh, Voldemort, he'll die forever. Yeah, exactly. And so in the, in the third book, um, like in each one of those books leading up to book four, uh, Voldemort's not really like Harry's just like this annoying thing that keeps getting in his way but in book four he realizes that if he gets Harry's blood he can come back to life so he doesn't want Harry because he's like I'm gonna get that guy he's like I need that guy because I will come back to life if I use his blood yeah yeah, yeah it is an interesting character what's your number 12 alright number 12 is Thanos so now, Thanos in the Marvel universe of the movies is pretty interesting already. And I think, uh, what's the guy's name? The actor? Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. I think he did a great job. They, they cast him well. He came off nuanced and powerful. But I am actually going off the, the comic books. In the comic books, Thanos has these long arcs. He keeps coming back. And it gets a little ridiculous. But his like one of his main arcs has to do with the fact that he is in love with death and not as in like, I like killing people. No, he's in love with the universal manifestation of death who is personified as this like sort of quasi female skeleton entity and death has no regard for him. So it's a case of, you know, a forlorn love. Like he doesn't, it's an unrequited love. So he's trying to impress death by doing more and more vicious things up to the point where he's like, I will kill half of the entire universe to impress you 
so you will love me. It's, it's this crazy, like, Greek, you know, tragedy type stuff. And it's a really interesting character. He's super powerful, but he becomes even more powerful because he attains all these magical things. And he has no regard for anything or anyone other than his love for death. So are there comic books that just follow Thanos? Yeah, they're, that follow cer- certain of his story arcs, yeah. Interesting. Um, so anyways, that's, that's uh, 12. Number 11, Hans Landa. Oh, that's my number 12. Right. That is From so Inglorious Bastards. In front of Inglorious Bastards. It's one of those, um, you know, iconic representations of the soft-spoken villain. Yeah. There's been, you know, several in, in movies and stuff. I, I think of uh, Belloc, who is actually, I just, spoiler alert, he's in my list. <laughs> I forgot about that. But he's, uh, he's a soft-spoken Nazi who is so intimidating because of the subtext of every word yeah. spoken. Yeah, I, I think that when we think about best movie villains, TV villains, it's a testament to the writer, director, the cinematographer, and the actor. And yeah. when you have Hans Landa portrayed by, um, what's his name? I forget. Oh, the yeah, guy. I, for, I forgot. He's also in, in Django Unchained. Yeah. And... Uh, anyway, him. And the guy who knows like 15 languages or yeah. something. And you have Quentin Tarantino directing. And you have the setting, the story written by Quentin Tarantino in setting in Nazi Germany. You have this cabin in the in the in a pasture somewhere. And it's the the scene, that first scene in Glorious Bastards is one of the most perfect it, it could be a short movie, you know, that that first scene. Yep. Is so masterfully you don't need there's very little obviously we come into it knowing about the Nazis yeah. and knowing about the Holocaust and knowing about the SS and, you know, all these, uh, so we come into it knowing the background, but the way that he did that is like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, that right. first scene of glorious pastors, because, because you're like, so he, this is why he's my number 12 is that um, you, I cannot, you know, you bring up um, Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That is Nothing compared to Hans Landa in my in, in, mm-hmm. in, in that category of intimidating but calm, but kind of because he's not big, he's not like a Thanos. No, he just has the power of bureaucracy. He's also not the main guy. Yeah, which is, I mean, we'll get to my Belloc things, but but I think with Hans Landa, it's so you could have used the same thing. In a Star Wars universe or in other universes, as long as you, you, you're you right that you have to have a little bit of an, an indication as a viewer that the people this person is associated with or the entities are really scary. Right. right? And, and, and the notion that if he is harmed, like say they kill him, say because that dad could have just wrestled right. him to the ground and strangled his life out. But it'll get back to Nazi headquarters Absolutely. and an entire, you know, Absolutely. unit of troops is going to show up at your, at your door and kill, kill everyone. So, and, and he's got that Columbo thing where right. it's like, I just, I just have a question, you know, yeah. just, I'm just curious. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the scenes that 
a Quentin recycled because it's also like with Samuel L. Jackson when oh, he yeah. goes into the uh, Kahuna Burger. That's right. He's well, like the, those guys. Hey, could yeah. I could I just sit down and have a? This is one tasty burger. Yeah, because he sits down. He has a glass of milk. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, you're right. It's that's what I'm saying. It is a um, it is archetypal, right? Like you have this person who is implicitly very powerful but on the surface they they're very educated soft spoken yeah. maybe even have wisdom to impart polite polite yeah but well here's the question Berto. did he know that he had jewish people hiding in the yeah so it depends in i like to think in the more real side of the coin of that movie no but that is his method that is how right. he finds cuz i always figured that was my take was yeah. that he didn't know. He just suspected, and, and that's how he finds them. <laughs> and 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 if if there's no one hiding in the basement, then he just gets to kind of screw with someone and get a glass of milk. Yeah. But if there is, he's gonna catch it. Then you know we'll just take our time. That's right. And that's that's why I'm saying Columbo because it's kind of the same. Like I'd like to think in Columbo, the TV show that it's an old TV show where it's this inspector that's very clever, but he's not a house. He's not a Dr. House or a Sherlock Holmes. You know, the Sherlock Supernatural. Holmes... Supernatural. Right. The Sherlock Holmes and Dr. House archetype is the unlikable genius who walks and immediately dissects everything. Well, I would say they are pseudo-supernatural individuals who divine things that aren't Right. You know, but, but even, even if you dialed back their, their dissection like, of Maybe like the, the written Sherlock Holmes. Right. But, but what I'm saying, even if you dialed back that aspect of it... They're not likable. They're they're the assholes. Yeah. But these kind of archetypes, they're very mild. They're likable. Yeah. They're mild mannered. And, and maybe we, what we should do, because remember with the crying, we did a scale from one to four, with right. four being like full, oh, yes, full yes, blubber. Yes, yes, yes. With this scale, let's do um, <laughs> the level of terror that we felt sure. when we first you know, sure. encountered them. So with... Um, one being like mildly scared and 10 being like um, the most scared we've ever been where, you know, from a TV villain where yeah, yeah. we don't want to go to sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. And we're, <laughs> we're, sh- we're, you know, we're having like a fight or flight adrenaline reaction watching sure. the movie or TV Now, I show. will say, I, I, I have a feeling my scale will not necessarily be linearly correlated with the rankings. No, no. Because there are other aspects. That and it I wasn't last Right, right. Okay. So, so I, just to rewind then, for Voldemort, from 1 to 10, in terms of scariness, I would put him right in the middle, like at a 5. Yeah. I'd put Voldemort at probably, especially the first couple books, was the way that she, especially without knowing where the story was going to end up, mm-hmm. you know, reading the first couple of books, I was legit scared of Voldemort. I could see that actually. And I would say, I, I think I literally did, was afraid to say Voldemort out loud yeah, because books, of the books. Maybe the books I would give him a seven. I think in the movie, because you know, it's a little harder. It's anytime you make a horror movie, it, it's, it demystifies, it, you know? So, yeah. but I'd say like in the movie one, it's like a five. I'd say the Thanos in the comic books, the Thanos in the movies for me, it's more like a three, but he's like, he's a really cool character. I just wasn't like scared of him, you know? Yeah. But in the, in the comic books, I honestly say it, like for me, it's kind of like a six because it's one of these feelings of like, 
I can't negotiate with this entity on any level. There is nothing I could say to plead or say anything because I am irrelevant completely. This entity only cares about an incomprehensible universal thing called death and he will destroy the universe if he needs. Like it's scary. It's like scary to think about. Like I'm so insignificant. All right. I'd say Hans Landa. I would give Hans Landa. Like if I were in that boat, in that house. No, no, while you were watching. Oh, while I'm watching, I'm person. I'm, I'm ima- like, I'm, it's so immersive. I'm imagining I'm sitting yeah. in that hot seat. Yeah. I was feeling like an eight. Yeah, I was going to say eight. Yeah. Like, because I'm sitting there like. He was terrified. I'm stressed. Yeah, I was, a, I was so I'm stressed, stressed out. And then they pan down and the, you're like. <gasps> like, I'm feeling it right now, dude. <laughs> I was just choked on my own fear. Okay. Um, my number 10 is Auric Goldfinger from. James Bond's movie Goldfinger. So, are you talking about like the first? What? How scared were you the first time you watched that movie? Oh yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. In the scary scale, I put him like at a two or something. Yeah, he's not that scary. It's the reason he's in my list of villains is he is the, he he is iconic. He defines Bond villainy because he's kind of a genius, but he's also like a a practical. A pragmatic genius. Are you excited for the new Bond movie? I am. I want to see the last hurrah. <sighs> yeah, I'm ex- I always get excited and then I always get disappointed. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, you know, we'll. But I, I was I, disappointed in the last couple. You I, know? I, 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 what I always so, I always do this to myself that this time it's going to be different. I, you know, in my, I saw a little trailer, a little bit of the trailer. I'm like it kind of looks like they've gotten back to their roots where it's just yeah. like a fun movie. Like yeah. the movies of late have been so depressing, you know, <laughs> like they're not like, think of the old Bond uh, movies. Well, that's why I didn't like Skyfall, but everyone loves Skyfall. I didn't like Skyfall. Good. You're with me. Um, so, okay. So we'll see. But we'll the see. other just side note trailer Dune. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Denis Villeneuve. I'm excited, but I haven't watched the trailer. I mean, Holy and I, what I I'm I'm so in love with this tra- and I love Dune the yeah. story and the, the all the both the movie, the movie and the, the sci-fi series, yeah. series that I am already hoping that they make a series out of this because mm. the the world building visually that Denny Villeneuve is doing Ooh. is so amazing because okay. you know the Dune universe is there's a lot of books yeah. and there's a lot of stories you can do yeah. like game of thrones you you know you could really go into this and i just think it 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 just it huh. just looks so good it just looks so amazing anyway uh number 9 okay so uh oh sorry just to wrap up with with goldfinger that the thing is that he is pragmatic clever and he established a lot of the paradigm a lot of the patterns that we actually enjoy about bond villains but yeah he wasn't that scary Okay, number nine is Belloc from the Raiders series, um, Indiana Jones foil. And the reason I think he's such a good villain, he is not a cookie-cutter, like, one-dimensional character. He's an archaeologist. He's in it for the love of archaeology. There's a competitive spirit to him, but he, he does give a certain amount of respect to Dr. Jones. He sees him as a worthy adversary. Right. It's almost like... He's not really a opposition. He's nothing just, personal, Doctor Jones. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Like I don't believe that. Like 
he was probably okay if Dr. Jones escapes with his life in many cases. Because, you know, he'll follow him again and steal his stuff again. <laughs> so, I like that. Also, he he's not, like, he's an opportunist. He's not actually a Nazi. He's just like, ooh, they can help me find this thing that I've been after for so long. And so, sure, he's got, but but he's also not after the power that the thing might possess. He's after the discovery. So, it makes him a really interesting bad guy. Yeah, it's just him and Indy just were associated with different organizations, one with the Nazis and one with the Americans. Yep. And then the fact that when when he's got the, his interaction with Marion is also nuanced and, and not obvious. He could have just been just a flat-out creeper and Marion hates him. And stuff. But, like, there was more subtlety than that. Yeah. So did he know Marion from before? Well, because they ran in the... Like, there there's these circles, right? He knows Dr. Jones... So did, I think did, he, did knew he her like father? Did he like Marion? I don't. Well, in the moment, yes, but I think he also knew her father or something. You know? well, that whole scene—it's he, was he trying to get with her? Well, yes, but he wasn't trying to like rape her. You know what I mean? Yeah, he was trying to seduce her legitimately, right? And well, of course she was get her to hammered escape. on drunk. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, fair enough. But um, but yeah, so he was attracted to her. Like yes, her. okay. Yeah, because I, I don't think I'd ever thought about that scene uh, about what is what's his motivation. Right. I'm I'm more in Marion's world of just like, how do you get out of there? Oh yeah, of course. And ultimately, of course, I mean, the, it's not it's not going to be good for her. Of course, it's just that they could have just written, "Ah, I come here." I mean, you know, like, right? It could have been more simple. Totally. Okay. Totally. Yeah. Number eight. Gus. Well, like the Nazi guy with the like he is a cartoon character of a Nazi. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than yeah. Belloc, who is more nuanced. Yeah. In fact, the the Nazi guy, who, who I do also love, and I and actually I was really scared of him when I was a kid. Yeah. When he came on the screen, and then his hand gets burned, and then he still sticks with it and stuff. Yeah. I was so frightened of that. But he is the cartoony version of Hans Landa. Right. Yeah, you because know, he's kind of like also kind of soft spoken. It's just that he's an exaggerated, very over the top. You know. Uh, okay, number eight, Gus Fring. From Breaking Bad. So it's another one of these like underspoken bad guys. Like soft, like he's the head of this, of this uh, narc um, empire, uh, narcotics empire. And yet he owns a chicken company, you know, the Los Pollos Hermanos. And he's just a business guy. And he, on the surface, he doesn't look that scary. He's just like, you know, this, you know, this like, person that only he's a businessman an entrepreneur and yet he becomes such a threatening imposing antagonist in that series and you're so scared of what he's going to do and how he's going to retaliate and how are you know it, like it's a really well-written bad guy now in terms of how scared i am oh by the way in ter- um belloc it's like a, a one a one or two in terms of scariness but it's right. all this nuance gus i was i was again like in the six maybe category because there were some some moments in that series where I'm like legitimately intimidated about what would this nar- like it's like watching a Pablo Escobar thing it's like you get scared like these these people do exist you know how ruthless they can be um, number seven Ramsey Bolton hmm. Ramsey Bolton uh, from Game of Thrones and I, I haven't read the book so I'm going off the series 
Um, I understand he might have been even worse in the books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, a shade worse. Yeah. Okay, so, but he is presented as like a psychopath. You know, he's a psychopath for real. He he just enjoys killing and maiming people for, he's a sadist, a, a total sadist. He enjoys the pain and suffering. Um, I was scared. I, I would I would give him a, an eight probably. Huh. Uh, so uh, while you're watching. You're, oh, Yeah. Well, because, I guess yeah. I, there are scenes like where he assaults Sansa. That's pretty awful. That whole scene that whole is scene one of the worst, most disturbing. Horrible. Yeah. And when he's got the, uh, what's the, the, the Theon. Theon? Right? Yeah. Theon Greyjoy. Theon Greyjoy. When he's got him under his thumb and just keeps pushing in and pushing in and just like, makes him go lower and lower and, and deeper into madness. I would, again, it was a quite of an immersive experience and I would sit there like feeling despair. Like, what would you do? How this person controls your life at this point? I don't know. It's just, it was really effective. Yeah. Um, there was also something about it that I found horrifying in how, how um, successful he was at his ruthlessness. Like yeah, he won right. the battle. Right. That was the genius of Martin writing is that he wouldn't pull punches the way that uh, most writers do, where the evil, horrible person that you hate would, in his books, as in history, win. win. <laughs> and you were hoping, I, I, I'm sure you were too, like while I was watching, I was hoping that this other kind of monster the um the brother the the guy that was coming to the the, the fought that war against him uh that had the melisandra was oh, his, um, the red witch and all that stannis baratheon stannis baratheon he's kind of a monster too right he right. has sacrifices his daughter and stuff. yeah but i was hoping he would beat ramsey Bolton. right because he's not as bad not doing as bad like, as ramsey yeah because he's not as chaotic i guess yeah the, the detail in the book that makes ramsey worse one of the details is he his armor. So the one thing that the show didn't do, but I think for a good reason, because it would have made it look really silly. But when Martin describes it, it it fits is because you know how the Bolton house is the flayed man, right? Yes. The, yes. The, there's an upside down man with his <laughs> skin being flayed off. Yeah. That that's their that's, that's their, their sigil. sigil. And they're, oh uh, you know, and Ramsey starts to initiate this old torture uh, system back into his family. And he had armor made to make it look, because, so, you know, you'd wear helmet and, and plate mail, mm -hmm. to make it look like he is being flayed. So it, it had, oh, it was wow. red armor and he had skin, like leather put on to make it look like oh. skin was being Pulled off. pulled off of his head and then oh it was and all the way down below his neck and so the way martin describes it you're just oh you just gosh. have this picture in your mind of this oh. sadist riding into battle with oh, that like display like this is what's going to happen to you yeah because and it will it will and it and it did he yeah. flayed many people <laughs> you know what i mean yeah that is intimidating so i bet you that would have been even higher i think okay so I think Ramsey 
was like maybe it was a seven. Maybe it was a seven for me, but it's still pretty frightening. Number six, Otis Driftwood. So Otis Driftwood is the I'd call him the main bad guy probably in House of a Thousand Corpses, which is a Rob Zombie horror movie, and also in he's in basically the series of movies he's in um, Devil's Rejects. So Otis Driftwood in House of a Thousand Corpses plays essentially the Charles Manson type. He is this super charismatic, essentially cult leader who is has no concern for human life and is hyper narcissistic and believes he's got this cause and blah, blah. And the whole time I'm watching it, it's another of these cases where you just feel so helpless because the, the two dudes, they get trapped with his, their girlfriends and the whole movie, you just know how doomed they are. But he just, he is so ruthless. And, and especially in the, the Devil's Rejects is even worse because there is no quarter given. There's no salvation. It's just depressing. And he is so terrifying. So to me, it's another good representation. Now, as far as the movies, you got to be into the horror genre to appreciate, but he's just like a really good. And I like him better than like a Jason or a Freddy Krueger or stuff like that cuz he's he's portrayed as a human. There's nothing supernatural about him. There's some supernatural elements in the in the House of a Thousand Corpses, but not him. He's not really supernatural. So anyways, I I would give him an 8 as well probably in in scariness. Um number 5 Benjamin Linus, Ben Linus from Lost. Seasons one and two only, ignoring the rest of it. Before I knew what the series was going to become, I was so, so into Lost season one and and mostly season two. Um, And when Ben is first introduced, he's this hyper mysterious figure. And you can't tell if he's an antagonist or if he's there to help. And he has power. And he's got some weird sort of power and you don't know what the hell's going on. And he is a different kind. He's not exactly like a Hans Landa because he's not, he appears frazzled and, and sort of like not really in control, but he, you know he's got power, but, but he's not. And so he's, he's kind of a chaotic, like chaotic, but smart. You get the yeah. sense like he's smart. When we did this on the 13 hour, when you said, Ben, I was triggered because I, I'm I'm so hurt by, by what the series became. What the series yeah, became yeah. that I reacted badly. I think, but yeah. now that I think back, yeah, Ben Ben was well written for a few episodes and well acted. Yeah, and there was a few episodes there when he turns evil and you realize, oh, Jeez. he is against he you. Is he bad. he he has control over your life, and it, and the way that his face would look like that. And it was such an interesting character. The the casting or the directing or writing it is that he could at one scene seem like this nice, you know, like a librarian type and a of victim. Because remember, he gets beat up like yeah. it's bad. But then the next scene, he could just be staring at another character, mm-hmm. and, you're, and you, the intimidation yeah. and the anger that you would feel behind his eyes. Absolutely. And do you remember, like at first, the, the thing they get warned is like, he will lie, he will lie, he will continue to lie. So the whole time they're showing us them talking to him, you're like, well, they told us he would lie, 
but he keeps claiming he's he's a victim. He's hurt. He's like, yeah. Okay, so to but me, I, I have to say that show was a bunch of crap. Yeah, I hear you. So I would I would say he wasn't very scary. He was just very interesting and layered in those first two seasons as a bad guy. So I would give him like a, a one or two in intimidation. But uh, number four, John Doe from Seven. Mm. Oh gosh. Okay. Religious uh, conspiracy fanatic. Go gone way off the deep end. Has books filled with the tiniest writing, with all his disdain for humanity, bound in this weird leather. Who knows if it's human skin or who knows what? He's got his house is a den of horrors and weird flasks of stuff. He goes on this crusade to torture people in the seven deadly sins manner, the worst possible scenarios any of us had ever seen on the big screen. Like, I remember when, when I watched that in the theater, I was so shocked. Like, one thing was worse than the other, and you're just like, oh my God. There's this scene where they walk in, the guy's clearly been dead for weeks. He looks like a mummy, and then all of a sudden you find out he's actually still alive, barely. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, okay. So, and they haven't even shown us who it is. They've just shown us a, a guy in an alley. And, like, and then when he's finally revealed, any movie that sets up such a mystery, such a moment, is going to disappoint us. And yet, in comes in, detective, and he turns himself in. It's, it's mind-blowing. And then, you know, I, I know that now he's fallen out of favor because of things he's done in his real life. But at the time, Spacey portrayed him so well. And, and he was kind of a Benjamin Linus, kind of like this like meek-looking, kind of frail-looking bad guy that was super scary. So when I saw that, especially that whole ending sequence, I was legitimately scared. Part, part of it is like there was sort of a religious connotation to it and a, oh my gosh, what would actually happen if this was happening in my life? And, and, and me being into like the serial killer thing, I was legitimately scared. So I would give him an eight as well. It was... It was a bit traumatizing. <laughs> uh, number three, Damien, the kid from the original Omen movie with uh, Gregory Peck. That kid, and it's, you know, poor kid, like obviously he was just a normal child, but they cast him so well. The movie is genius. It's, it's my favorite horror movie of all time. It shows no gore, shows no special effects, like no floating ghosts or anything. Yeah, it was made at a time when... There was a, a number of good horror movies, yeah, like uh, Rosemary's Baby, right? Uh, which I rewatched recently, and the first ninety eight percent of that movie, ninety seven percent, is one of the best movies ever made, and definitely one of the best horror movies ever made. Yeah. The last <laughs> seven minutes are some of the dumbest movie making I've ever seen right. in my life. Whereas this movie never drops the ball and it gets scarier and scarier. And the thing is, at the end of the movie, you're seeing Gregory Peck trying to stab this child to death. Now, think about that. In reality, and you're, and you're hoping that he get that he and gets that he it. does. But in reality, you would have to think. Spoiler Gregory, alert! Spoiler alert! You would have to think Gregory Peck has lost his mind, right? In reality, like we need to put Gregory Peck in a hospital. He's trying to murder his child. But because you've been following the movie and you know that it's real, you are 
gunning for this child to get it. And the child, they, they, they cast the most cherubic, cherubic looking, angelic looking kid. And yet he's got this little twinkle in his eye. It, it, it couldn't have been better. I need to watch that. There's a scene where he's riding his little tricycle on the, like right where his mom is. And his mom is up on a little stair on the railing. This is in the 60s? Yeah, 60s, 70s maybe. I think it's 70s. It's, it must be 70s. And it is such a tense scene because you know what's going to happen. And the kid's just like, dee, 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 dee. It, it's like a shining kind of scene. It's right. so good. Anyways, I, Damien, in that movie, I gave it a 10. And the reason is because when I was a kid, I believed all that stuff. And seeing that on the big screen, actually, I didn't even see it on the big screen. I saw it in a VHS probably. I was legitimately scared for my life. You I saw thought, it as a kid? Yeah. How old were you? I was in, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. That's too young to be watching something like that. It was so scary, dude. So scary. I was legitimately, because it, it felt real. Because at the time, I remember a lot of us brought our Bibles and we were reading the Revelations and we were like, that's what they said in the movie. Antichrist. And they said the Antichrist would come from the sea of politics. And we were debating, I wonder if it's such and such. Is it Reagan? Is it like we were talking about things? Yeah. Anyways, it was super scary. Number two, the Joker in Dark Knight. This is the Heath Ledger Joker. So this one is not scary from, you know, like I just gave a 10 to Damon. I would give this Joker maybe a, a four, maybe, or something like that. Um, the thing about this villain, it could have been just another wacky Joker that does wacky things. Instead, it is sort of the criminal mastermind who is clearly not right, but at the same time has a method to his madness. Every scene is so intense. Like when he first, he comes up to the, to the um, group of mobsters that's gathered and they're like, who the heck is this guy? And he, he's like, do you want to see a trick? And he does the pencil trick. And like that whole thing is just so, yeah. so great. Yeah. And then when he's with Batman and he doesn't care, he's getting beat up. So part of what I've said, there's this theme for me. Whenever I feel I have no negotiating power, no bargaining with this bad guy, I feel really uneasy because you kind of picture yourself, what would you do? How would you try to save yourself? And you feel like you can't. You don't have any leverage. You have no leverage. And he really does that. He's like, I don't care. I am willing to die right here and right now. I don't care. Have you seen the breakdown of... Because when you're watching a movie like that, you don't have enough information to know what's happening until the movie's over. Yeah. And have you seen like a breakdown of the Joker and his motivations in that movie? I don't know if I have. It, it, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, what was he thinking at the time? <laughs> and and that was his plan. Like, I, I think they broke down the first scene that he's in where they robbed the bank, right? Oh, wait, I did see something about this. And they're like, right. so wait a second. He planned on that happening and then this happened and he knew that was going to happen right and that was his con and you know it just completely demolishes the whole thing but anyway I actually, yeah. I actually saw it from a different perspective which was that criminal mastermind angle because like when you see the Joker in the original Batman movie he's very entertaining Jack Nicholson was amazing but a criminal mastermind he's not it's just he's 
he's out for money and he's trying to do some crazy shit. Whereas Alex Luthor, you, you, he's supposed to be a criminal mastermind. But I really appreciated the Joker as a criminal mastermind because in the books he is, in the comics he's supposed to be like that, you know? Yeah, Heath Ledger, his depiction you could tell was inf- heavily influenced by him. You, you can't direct that. No, right. And Heath Ledger as a person is is kind of like that. Like yeah. when he, you see him in interviews, he he's kind of a goofball. Yeah. And uh yeah, it, it's obviously, you know, one of the most memorable villain performances of all time. My number 1, of course, Darth Vader. Darth Vader, that's my number 2. Is uh first of all, when I saw him as a child, in terms I had this weird thing like I would at the same time probably give him a 10 in how scared I was but also a 10 in how cool I thought he was. Right. It's like, I'm sitting there. Well, I was different, though. I, I, well, you I, were older as well. Yeah, I, well, I was six when I, I saw Star Wars in the movie theater. and But even when I was 13 and saw Return... I was three when I saw... Yeah, I, I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. Only. I never thought Darth Vader was cool. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. I thought you were going a different way with it. Okay. I thought he was cool... Well, okay, I don't know what I thought at three. Fine. But I do remember by the time Empire came out, I loved the Darth Vader toys. I loved that character. I just thought it was so cool. But he was also terrifying. And like, okay, in the Star Wars movie, when he first shows up, like one of the best entrances of all time, period, let alone for a bad guy. And he takes over the movie in that moment. This... Keep in mind, this is a movie where you're all, your mind is already blown. You've never seen something like this. Ship, a huge triangular ship chasing another ship. When have you seen this? And then they board and you see these stormtroopers and these lasers and the robots and the beautiful princess. Your mind is blown. And yet, Darth Vader shows up and now that's all you can think of. It's crazy. Yeah. And the breathing and, and the, uh, power, the, the oh, voice. Understated power. Yeah. Now, it gets even better because... By the time we get to Empire, he's got the Hans Landa thing going a little bit. Like, join us, you know? Yeah. Join us. Hans, Hans Solo opens the door for the, for the dining room. Yeah, for join me, I, I give him number two out of honor of my Star Wars nerddom and how I've lived with Darth Vader in my life since I was six years old and how iconic Darth Vader is yeah. and perfectly designed and and risks. I mean, I, there's so many things about Star Wars that if it was just a hair off would have been like laughable. Yeah. To have this tall guy in black with a cape. He has a cape. He has a cape. He has this, you know, breathing thing. <sighs> like if that was stylistically a little different. Yeah. Um, if they went with a different voice actor than James Earl Jones, if, I don't know, there's just little things that if you just did it a little differently, Darth Vader would would be a joke. So there's so many risks, is what I'm saying. And they all landed. (laughs) And it's such a great character. And we've talked about this during the 13th. I remember that in the first movie, he's not the top of the heap. He's... Uh, kind of like a a menace or a priest, right? Well, he never is, right? Because then the second movie we find out he's got an emperor, right? Right. 
But even in the first movie, even he, in the first movie, he looks. He seems like he's a servant to Grand Moff Tarkin, right? right? He's like um, he's like the Hound or something. You right. know, he's just like the guy who can be violent and and lead the army or something. Which, by the way, honorary mentions both to Grand Moff Tarkin as bad guy and the Emperor because. Grand Moff Tarkin is an amazing bad guy. Right. He, he's also a Nazi type that is like, right. oh, well, let's make sure we find out what you're up to, you know? Yeah. And uh, yet he's super powerful and super despotic and doesn't care to blow up a planet. I mean, he kills way more people than Darth Vader. And <laughs> similar to what you were saying, you can't reason because he's not driven by emotion. Exactly. He's driven by a goal yeah. and he's using logic like well let's blow up Alderaan just yeah, to we'll make just blow up Alderaan. make sure you know yeah. like you could tell with Darth Vader you can reason if you're at least if you're his child <laughs> right right um all right let's take a break we we'll get back let's do my top 13 what do you say Berto let's do it all right Berto we're back from the break so I, I I keep wanting to make this announcement on the audio podcast we haven't done it is we gave out two scholarships yes. during our 13th, and I want to make those announcements now, months later. Uh, Danielle Wiley was the winner of the Psychology in Seattle podcast $2,000 scholarship, which is awarded to mental health students who have already made, a world, made the world a better place and plan to make the world a better place. Danielle is pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle. I swear to God, we did not choose her just because she was from Seattle, but she's from Seattle, so that's great. And she's awesome going to my and your alma mater. She has made the world a better place by seeking opportunities to serve black and low income families, prioritizing them in culturally adaptive and sensitive research projects and striving to plug the leaky academic pipeline to support other students of color in pursuing graduate education in psychology. And uh, you can read her full kind of uh, write-up on our website. Okay. And then we, but we were normally only going to give one scholarship, but we liked this other student also so much that we gave them a $1,000 runner-up scholarship. Joe Yi Chin is the second place winner for $1,000. Uh, let's see. Joe Yi is pursuing their bachelor degree in psychology science at Monash University, Malaysia, in Malaysia. Joe Yi has been at the forefront of LGBTQIA plus advocacy in Malaysia. I mean, just imagine wow. that. They are at the forefront, at the chevron <clears throat> of LGBTQIA plus advocacy in Malaysia. That's incredible. Getting a degree in psychology science and... You know, so already making the world a better place and plans to continue doing so. Also, let's do some patron shout outs, some OPP. OPP. Old patron praise for those who became patrons back in September of 2018. We have Anne, deserving listener Anne. We have Denzel from Louisville, Texas. Is it Louisville or Louisville? I don't know. We have Adam from God Knows Where. We have Matthew from New York City. Nice. We have John from Lowell, Indiana. We have Mac from Dallas, Texas, who's second Texas hmm. person. We have Liz from God Knows Where. We have Tyler from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we have Marletier from Seattle, Washington. Woo! So thank you all, the bunch of you, for being patrons for so long, ever since September 
2018. My top 13 movie villains starts number 13 with Agent Smith from The Matrix. So good. Yeah. The character (laughs) is perfectly written and executed. Oh, yeah. All powerful, but then not in the end. I mean, the way that he, Neo, beats him is by uh, being able to see and manipulate the code that informs their reality and he jumps into agent Smith and blows him up from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> but before that happens, agent Smith, unbeatable. yeah, it, it's so scary and it's so, uh, the, you got a sense for who he was. And also as a, you know, like I never, I always, so, uh, you know, a good villain and also good writing, good, good directing, good acting, can convince you of things that don't make a lot of sense. Agent Smith is a program. Yep. And also a human version, human manifestation, or a sort of a avatar, if you will. And I believed in that. I was bought in that Agent Smith was a computer program manifesting as an avatar. And and those earpiece, I don't know, it's just a perfect one and, and I mean, so when they introduce him, you first see his agents and you see, oh gosh, his agents are so intimidating and scary. And he's the best of them. Right. It's like, oh God. Uh, number 12, Hans Landa, Glorious Bathers. Yes. Bathers. Number 11, Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men. Right. Just terrifying. Doesn't so, he have a nail gun? No, he he had um, a, it was a... A gun that they use to kill cattle, I think. It's oh, okay. A, it uses air pressure to okay. shove a, a rod, boat, right? Like a rod, a long rod. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And Jeez. anyway, Agent Smith scale from one to ten, I would say like a five. Hans Landa, yeah, I'd say like a like a like a eight or nine. Anton Chigurh, I'd give yeah like an eight or nine. Um, number 10, Amon Geth from Schindler's List, the bad guy. Right. Also yes. played by Ray Fiennes. Um, yeah, I'd give that like a, I don't know, a six or a seven. That Nazi character is all powerful, can yeah. do whatever he wants, not only with the Jewish people, but also because he's the top of the heap with the Nazi and the soldiers and everything. Yeah. And. I you know the character is a little cartoony at times, but it it just personifies the Nazi. Yeah. I guess I have two Nazis. Yeah, well, Nazis are scary. <laughs> um, number nine, Terminator, the first movie. Oh yes. So when I saw this movie when I was I don't know twelve or something, <laughs> it's terrifying. This this machine can do anything. You know, it it's invulnerable. It is. It can imitate voices. It's it has computers and you know optics and guns, and it it just keeps coming after you. And the you know Sarah Connor and Reese are these defenseless humans with Sarah Connor with who need you know rest, and they bleed, and you know it it, it just felt so scary. <laughs> Do you know that he didn't want to say I'll be back? He he was trying to convince James Cameron, right? Yeah. He's like, um, I think, I think I would say I'm a robot, so I I would probably say all the words like I will be back, 
And, you know, so I'll do it like that. I will be back. And uh, James Cameron's like, uh, no, I'll be back. It's better. It's like, no, but I think that... And then finally James Cameron's like, uh, what does the fucking script say? Uh, I'll be back. Then do what the script says. (laughs) He said that to him shortly. Arnold was talking about that in some podcast or something. It was like, wow. James Cameron yelled at Arnold. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time he was just an upstart director. Yeah, so I would give Terminator, yeah, like a... Especially when I saw it back then, I'd give it like a seven. I mean, there's different kinds of fear, right? There's the fear you get from Damien, which is like chilling fear. Like with the ring, for example, the girl, that's like a 10. Kind of like an existential dread that like you might die from this. (laughs) But Terminator is, it's and with like Amon Geth or Anton Chigurh, it's more like I feel bad for the characters yes. and it's yes. and it's just so frustrating and right. like, that's a, again another uh, success thing that you can point to is to make a character seem like they're gonna get you but not like they're so ridiculously powerful like uh, Mike Myers for example that's why those movies just don't really work for me because yeah. once you get past a certain threshold those bad guys like you know Friday the 13th Freddy Krueger they just can do like or it for example yeah, yeah. they can do whatever they want right so there, there's no avoiding it. they're doomed <laughs> you know whereas with anton chigurh or terminator there's i don't know how they do it but they make it so that you might be able to get out of it well it's still grounded in physics at least to the extent that that you know about it right you know whereas it can just <laughs> appear out of nowhere yeah. and uh, number eight, Nurse Ratchet from One, Ooh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> I mean, totally. We did a whole episode on yeah. this movie. And after rewatching it, Nurse Ratchet, the character from one angle, is actually just doing her job. Yeah, that's the sense I got. And I feel, did you, did you say you read the book? No. Okay, because my understanding. I think Colin might have read the my book. My understanding is Nurse, Nurse Ratchet in the book is way more terrible. Mm. So I read about people who had read the book okay. who said that. And yeah. they said it was a genius of the movie that they dialed it back a little. Yeah, because I, I, I think that's what makes her such a good villain in a sense that it's, it's like you can see it from her side. And a lot of villains that are really great have right. that. Well, first watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or maybe the first few, because I've probably seen it 10 times over my lifetime. I always thought of her as an evil character. An evil, yeah. But as I get older... Same, same, I'm like I'm same. like wait she's actually just doing her job yeah and <laughs> uh, the uh, Jack Nicholson character is actually in the wrong a lot of times I mean that comes with maturity because as teenagers and kids and then early adults any form of authority that suppresses our individuality and our freedom it, we we feel it's terrible yeah uh, number seven is John Dunsworth who is played by Jim Leahy on the TV show Trailer Park Boys. Right. So this is a comedic. Obviously, you're not scared of Jim Leahy on Trailer Park uh, Boys. And I say John Dunsworth because he died, I think, last year. And the, the actor. And this is like, you know, uh, New- Noonan from... Uh, Newman. 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 Right. It's like that character that's yeah. always getting in the main character's yeah, yeah. way and 
it's just I don't know. I just love that yeah. TV show, and I just love that character. It's so it's a great foil. It's a great antagonist for the. And the trailer, trailer Park Boys spans many seasons, and so Jim Leahy kind of evolves over time. It's like you could say, you know, like the movie Office Space, uh, Lumberg is a great bad guy in a sense, right? Because yeah. he's so annoying, but there's nothing scary about it. It's just like, oh, right. Lumberg. Yeah. Uh, number six, another comedy, Parks and Rec, Councilman Jam. Okay. Jeremy Jam. So for those who know the TV show Parks and Rec, you know what I'm talking about. Councilman Jam is the main uh, antagonist to... Who, who plays him? Um, I don't know his name, but he, he's been in a lot of like improv. Is he's, it the guy with the mustache? No. Okay. You wouldn't. You, I don't think oh. you'd have. Um, Councilman Jam is... He's just hilarious. And there's sometimes late at night on YouTube, I'll just watch like mashups of him doing things. Anyway, he's just a hilarious character. But very frustrating. Like, similar to Jim Leahy <laughs> on Trailer Park Boys. you just gets in the way. You, like, as you're watching, you <laughs> want those guys to go away. You know, like <laughs> Councilman Jam. Like, no. no. You know. Uh, number five, the Borg from Star Trek. Okay, so talk about a bad guy that you can't negotiate with. Right. So, <laughs> like... Terminator, yeah. but oh, on a but TV series. Times 100. <laughs> and also, it has this element of it adapts, and it, you can kill them, but they just absorb more. You know, they, they roll up on a planet and just absorb everybody. And they don't have, and that's like, they don't share any of your needs, sensibilities. They're just trying to absorb. Nothing. They just yeah. want to absorb you and your yeah. energy and your labor. It's like trying to negotiate with a virus. Exactly. And... It, you could consider it to be kind of a virus. And the way they, up until that point on Star Trek The Next Generation, they'd never had a a villain that was so scary and so frustrating. Right. And they're not evil. Right. They're just a force of nature. Right. Until they kind of ruined it with this movie depiction of the Borg where they had this woman, anyway. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was okay, but it, it kind of... That cheap kind of it. cheapened the yeah. the concept. They of made fun of that in Rick and Morty. They did, yeah. That the thing I'm talking about right now. I'm pretty sure that's what they're making fun of. That's funny. Meaning there's a character that Rick has a on and off love affair with, that has a Borg planet. She takes over planets like the Borg. Oh, but okay. She's like she's she's got free will. She's a yeah. I'm still <laughs> working my way through those episodes, and uh, I'm really getting into it. Yeah. I, I, f- I finally got to the episode that everyone was talking about with the um Szechuan sauce. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm like all of that cultural hubbub <laughs> was about this Szechuan sauce. I just want to get my Szechuan sauce. Like and well, I'm like what's what's funny is I also think that and maybe this is pretentious of me. It probably is pretentious of me. But I think that like you know maybe some 60% of people that were into that whole meme missed the point which was you know the guy is hurting and is suffering, and the Szechuan sauce is a total diversion from well, it. And it's obviously absurd. So he is, uh, he's going back in time in his memory, yep. uh, Rick, and he is like, you know, this guy's like, what do you want to do now that you're in 1985 or something? And Rick's and he what the guy is thinking that Rick's going to say is oh I want to go see my my wife who died soon after that and he's like 
I want to get some Szechuan sauce, you know, because because yeah. they introduced it at McDonald's and they never they like never put. Any, I want to, I want that Szechuan sauce. The joke is, it's this ridiculously <laughs> stupid thing that someone would want to get, and it, and it, there's no sauce can be that good, <laughs> and people took it literally, yeah. and then they were, you know, selling Szechuan sauce on the internet for That's thousands right. of dollars. That's right, and I'm like, did you not? Do you not know it's a it's well, a and, comedy show? And, and to me, like, and you know, I'm not the writer, and who knows if the writer would agree, but to me, like, that's still Rick's surface excuse. And no, he actually would have loved to see his wife one more time. But know? yeah, anyway. So <laughs> number five, the Borg. Uh, number four is Siler from Heroes. Season one, Siler is a great villain. So I was. So, so I guess there's two scales we think of, of like the frustration scale and the fear scale. So with Damien, it's like, or the ring, you're like at a 10 on the fear scale and maybe high on the frustration. But with Siler, it was fear, but it was mostly this frustration yeah. that the villain produces. And Siler produced so much frustration. And when we learn his backstory, yep. then we're like, oh, you know, it, and it did it in this very economical way. But I'm surprised you were able to put Siler in there and you initially were against my Ben Linus. I know. <laughs> well, the thing I'll say about Heroes is that the first season, I could still watch that and think it's a good season. Yeah. If I rewatched the first season of Lost, yeah. I would be rolling my eyes the entire time because I'm like, well, that never pays that's, off. Yeah. Well, that never pays <laughs> off. No, that's that's a good point. The, the Heroes first season could have been a great movie, for example. Yeah. And and they could have ended it yeah. there. You know? How they managed to screw up that wonderful show. Uh, I mean... But Siler, you're right. Siler was so imposing, scary in that sense of like, Oh God! And he's so powerful and uh yeah, stressful. It's stressful. Yeah, stressful. Yeah. Number three is Joffrey Baratheon from Game of Thrones. Yeah. So you you put Joffrey instead of uh, Ramsey. Uh, Ramsey. So Ramsey to me is so over the top that I'm not scared. Whereas Joffrey is believable. Sure. And, and there were Ramseys in history, but sure. there were. I th- I think a lot more Joffreys where he's just insecure and, and incompetent, low self esteem, you <laughs> yeah. know, and immature, and and yet powerful and could destroy Capricious. everyone. Yeah, and, he ruins himself by and, being stubborn. Yeah, and he's just and he's so frustrating and just no, it's I really hated great. hated Joffrey Baratheon. It's really, great. I'm actually rereading the books and. Um, they're so, especially the first book in, in the, it's Game of Thrones. That's the first book. The Song of Ice and Fire is the series. It is so good. And I'm in, I'm reading the second book right now. Wait, sorry. Where, where does the first book end? The first book ends not long after Eddard is killed. Okay. And Arya is in, or maybe we don't know what happens to Arya yet, but... Um, yeah. So it's soon after Eddard is killed. So it's similar to the first season. And oh, and, and it's probably exactly like the first season. Okay. Exactly. And and, okay. and um, Robert is Rob is starting to, you know, come south. I don't know if. So they were trying to do one season per book. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, the first book is so 
wonderfully written. All the books are wonderfully written, but the the storyline, the way it kind of builds hmm. in the first book is just so masterful. I'm in the second book right now, and I'm just not as jazzed. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually skipping the Daenerys chapters. Okay. I like the character of Daenerys, but the storyline to me is... It just doesn't get me the way that the Arya or the Sansa or the Jon or do you feel like Tyrion? Are you influenced by where it ended up in the show? Or? No, I okay. think that I just never. Whenever I'd watch the show or read the books in the past, I, I just never. Now that I know where it ends up, I feel like I. You know, the first time I was going through it, I yeah. needed to know, but I was never that interested. You know what I mean? I so, see. Yeah, it just. I I, I want to, anytime they get it, I just want to know all the stories related to the mundane Game of Thrones in Westeros, you know? Even when they go to Dorne, I'm kind of bored. You know, I'm mainly interested in the, you know, the main castle intrigue, if you right. will. Um, uh, let me ask you, in the books, is are the White Walkers and like the North, is that the main threat in the books? Or is no. that also a secondary thing. No, it's just like it is in the TV show. Okay. The it, it starts off with the White Walkers in the prologue to the first book. Uh-huh. And then a White Walker enters Castle Black and is killed by John. Um so there's this like wait, are the White Walkers real? Like mm. there's this question like that I thought this was a like an old you know, wives' tale kind of a thing, and and as the series has gone, like so far, where the series is at, is it now where it was in the in the show? No, the so the books, the books end when Sansa or when Theon jumps from the wall with Jane Poole, not with Sansa. Sansa is still in the Eyrie. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, it ends with the Hound is presumably dead. Arya is still being trained, I think. And the mom is back as a zombie. The mom is back as a, as kind of an undead character. (laughs) Uh, Theon, right. Theon jumps from the wall. Um, You know, all the normal stuff, but the, uh, and, and John is dead. John is killed by, by his brothers. And we don't know that he'd be coming back. Right. He's hit the, he, at the last we do in the books, he's dead. Presumably because they wouldn't bring him back if Martin didn't say, hey, by the right. way, I'm bringing him back soon. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? And like, are the dragons big and everything? They're medium. Okay. And uh, the and- White Walkers are still extremely not a thing. You okay. know what I mean? Like, like... And that's one of the reasons why I don't, I'm not angry at the Game of Thrones people for season Mm -hmm. eight or even the later seasons. Because as I was reading the books and we get to book five out of seven, I'm like, why are we introducing new characters, you know? And why are we getting further afield from the main (laughs) storyline? Like, the main storyline is. Uh, King's Landing, you know, who is king of Westeros and the White Walkers and the Wall. Why yeah. are we're starting, you know, the books start to go further out. And and <laughs> and then so when 
they went beyond the books, I was like, they have to wrap up a lot of stories in a very short amount of time. Sure, yeah. And um, now I would have done it differently. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean my main, if, if I could just fix one thing, it's like, I, I disagree with the choice. Books aside, in the TV show, they certainly made it feel like the White Walkers were the big payoff. They were the big antagonist. They were the big thing we were going to have to contend with. Yeah, and, and so it, it was is quite anticlimactic too. how that. Whole but it's thing the same ended. as in the books, in that even though that is the big uh, threat that is looming, the, the most all the book is written about is court intrigue, you know, and little battles here and there. You know what I mean? So, so it's similar to that. But, yeah. um, but anyway. Uh, I actually thought it'd be kind of fun to make an episode about if we could redo the series, actually. Sure. <laughs> uh, maybe even going back earlier, because um, as I'm reading the books again, I'm like, because they start making changes right away. Yeah. That, you know, they started changing, you know, diverging from the book um, a lot in the second book, actually. Uh, not in huge ways, but but in, you know, some interesting ways. Like, there's that scene where Theon lands in Pike for the first time after being the ward at Winterfell, and his sister picks him up, but he, she doesn't say, I'm your sister, and Theon hits on her and actually, like, puts his hand down her pants and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that whole scene? Yeah. Well, that never happens. And there's a different guy. There's, like, anyway, I'm starting, I'm starting to lose my mind again. <laughs> um so yeah, Joffrey Baratheon, very, very first. Number two, Darth Vader. And number one, both super scary and super frustrating is Bob from Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. So if you watch Twin Peaks today, the first, you know, couple, I think it was only on a couple seasons. I understand if you thought, one, this this TV show is stupid, and two, <laughs> that Bob isn't scary. I would I would totally respect that. But when I was 19 years old and watching this TV show as, you know, as it was airing week to week, and it was like must-see TV that I would watch, I was crawling out of my skin <laughs> when Bob would come on the screen. I mean, the way that David Lynch, know, he knows how to scare people. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of David Lynch, like I would give many honorary mentions to characters from David Lynch movies. Right. Dune has plenty of examples. Right. The Baron, uh, Sting, all these things. But also, the guy uh, played by, uh, what was the actor's name that went to jail? In Lost Highway. Oh, right. Uh, when he shows up at the party and goes up with his crazy eyes and he's like, I'm in your house. I know. Like, it's just it's just so creepy. So yeah, I can imagine. God, I just I've got never... chills when you said that. Yeah, yeah. It, he does. He, he <sighs> David Lynch is best. So and Bob is the pinnacle. So I've never seen Twin Peaks. I've seen the first episode of the series. I'm one. I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to watch it and see how I feel because I want to see if I feel how you're describing or, you know, how far away from that. So I, I would predict that you're not going to like it because. It's a show from 30 years ago, and it ha and it also I've rewatched it, and there are certain storylines. It's kind of like a soap opera in that there are different storylines mm -hmm. that you don't need to see, and there are I certain storylines that I would skip over. So, um, it 
if you wanted to really, I wonder if they do a supercut of, <laughs> of just like the main storyline. Okay. Because uh, it's pretty good, uh, I would say. Okay. Um, but yeah, the Bob character is it's, it's and and the whole I won't spoil it, but the the whole kind of um, storyline around who Bob is and mm-hmm. why he is and what he is. It's just creepy. Okay, yeah, it and just it would just give me chills. I can imagine though, a it being a David Lynch thing. B, at the time Twin Peaks came out, I mean this was right. before so many shows that. That's came what out. I'm saying. Like, yeah, imagine like, you're it's it's 1990, yeah, and you're watching tele a television yeah. show, and there's this one scene that is burned in my brain of so Bob is this long haired, he has gray kind of white hair. But he looks youthful, and he just looks like kind of like a, a scrawny biker guy. So you're describing someone that sounds a lot like Otis Driftwood, the guy I was saying from House of okay. a Thousand Corpses. And there's this scene where you're, oh, it gives me chills, where Laura Palmer or someone just kind of recalls Bob. Oh, my God, it gives me so much chills. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> and... The shot, you know, the the music is building, and then this, we see kind of like a flashback, a camera, the camera is pointing down at the foot of a bed, uh-huh. and Bob is at the foot of the, is like on, uh-huh. is kneeling on the ground, and his his head is, you know, his chin is right at the, you know, oh right at gosh. the, and all you see is his face, and he's, He's like going, and he's baring his teeth, and that's all. And that's all you see. And then that's it. Like, and for several episodes, that's that's all you get of Bob. That's terrifying. But then, but then the presence of Bob, and just the name Bob. Bob. What about Bob? It's just the name Bob. Anyway, sounds like the Blob. So just rattling off several. Honorable mentions. We got the Elizabeth Shue character in The Boys. We have Marlo Stanfield of The Wire. Which, by the way, uh, as much as I liked Elizabeth Shue, the character in the comics, it's a dude. I I think it's fine that they switched it to a gal. That's not the issue. It's that um, he is more like the uh, Star Wars guy, Grand Moff Tarkin type. Mm. Um, He is always cool as a cucumber not a care in the world and yet he is the most destructive you know evil person you know interesting uh balthazar from despicable me three. Oh, i thought you were gonna say wasn't balthazar the name of uh in in um battle battlestar galactica oh yeah right i think i think that was his name yeah we have calvin candy from django unchained Yes. We have Vector from Despicable Me 1. Calvin is, is played by Leo, right? Yeah. Oh, God, what a great bad guy. Of course, Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Oh, yeah. We have John Hamm's character in White Christmas, Black Oh, Mirror. yes, yes. We have Nick Offerman's character, Forrest, from Devs, the TV show Devs. Totally. And is he a bad guy? I mean, I mean right? that's the thing. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, he awesome, kills but people. But that's why it makes it a great entry into it. Yeah. We got... Adolf from Jojo Rabbit. Didn't see it, unfortunately. Uh, Ramsey Snow. Uh, the, the Giants in Attack on Titan. Yes. Livia Soprano from The Sopranos. 
Oh, yeah. Dukat from Star Trek. Who's that? From Deep Space Nine. He was... Uh, is he a Klingon? Uh, he was he was a nuanced bad guy. Like is he a Klingon or a... no? He is. Um, uh, the, there's a war between the Bajorans and uh, I can't remember the other. But anyway, Dukat, okay. Alex from a uh, Clockwork Orange. Yes, Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. <laughs> F. Murray Abraham, who oh. who plays and. Antonio Soleri from Amadeus. So no, so I I felt terrible when we did this live. And I remembered that I didn't put the bad guy from my favorite movie of all time. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Antonio Soleri is just hilarious in Amadeus. Just, I mean, <laughs> I, I, whenever I watch Amadeus, I'm mainly watching for F. Murray Abraham's performance yeah. in that movie. Like, I don't really care about Amadeus himself. Or, really? Okay, I actually enjoy it. But, I mean, he, absolutely, he stole the show, no question. I really liked the. Yeah, I mean the movie's yeah, great, but just, if it does, if it so didn't have F. Murray Abraham, no, yes, I, I, the movie would just be half. The agreed. But that um, laugh. <laughs> yeah, Norman Stan Norman Stanfield from uh, Leon the Professional, so oh, yeah. the bad guy, uh, Emperor Palpatine, T one thousand from Terminator Two, Gollum from Lord of the Rings, Thanos. The Alien from the Alien franchise. What about Norman Bates? Uh, not really. I mean, it's fine, but... Uh, this is my list, Berto. <laughs> the Wicked Witch from the West, Skeletor, Newman, Montgomery Burns, Al <laughs> Swearingen from Deadwood, a great nuance character, Mr. Blonde, Sauron, Joker, Cersei Lannister, Peter Baelish, Tywin Lannister, Nelson Muntz from The Simpsons... You know, if I could add a comic book one in, I would add Lobo from um, Lano. Sorry, Lano, not Lobo. Lano from 100 Bullets. Oh, right. Yeah. Wiley Coyote, The Mountain, Francis Underwood from House of Cards. Oh, yes. Viserys Targaryen, Lord Walder Frey. A lot of Game of Thrones characters. Yeah, well, lots of bad guys. <laughs> Frank Burns from MASH. Wait, who's that? Uh, he was. You remember Mash? I mean, I didn't watch it. Oh, but I know. But well, but I know Alan Law, Landa or what was his name? Alan Alda. <laughs> uh, I like that. Well, wait, I, who? Which one was that? No, listen. Well, did you watch it? No. Okay. What I mean is, I watched a couple episodes, but I didn't follow the show. Well, you clearly because Frank Burns was uh, anyway. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton in Fargo, the TV show. Boba Fett, Jabba the Hutt. Jason Lee's bad guy character from The Incredibles. Actually, I like a lot of cartoons, like modern sort of Pixar-y <laughs> cartoon bad guys. I mean, Boba Fett is actually not... A, I mean, look, I love the character. I love the toy, all that stuff. But he's not a good, well-developed character at all. No, but in Empire, when he is, you know, on in the pursuit and... I don't he's know. He's threatening. Yeah, very threatening. Yeah. Uh, David Lopan from Big Trouble Little China. Oh yes, <laughs> Prince Humberdink. So Prince Humberdink from Princess Bride. The Demi Gorgon from Stranger Things. Khan from Wrath of Khan. Fletcher from Whiplash, the teacher. Frank Booth from Blue Velvet, the oh, Dennis yes. Hopper character. Another David Lynch. Yeah. Um, Ordell Robbie from Jackie Brown, played by Samuel Jackson. Uh, I would add the Baron Harkonnen in there. Okay. Well, that took a lot longer than I thought it would, Berto. 
we actually luxuriated a lot longer than we did because we've actually been recording. Well, because we did it snappily during the because we could only we could only do it like in yeah. twenty five minutes or so. Yeah. Um, what are your top thirteen movie TV villains, listeners? Yeah. Comment below or uh, post on the fan page or the Discord or something like that. Share. Because I want to know, honestly, who are your top 13 villains from movies or TV shows? And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.